from the studios of Postscript Media and Canary Media. I'm Shao Khan, and this is Catalyst. If you want to transport the same energy as in one cubic meter of oil, well, you need more than 3,000 cubic meters of hydrogen at normal temperature and pressure. So you see that the boat is going to be quite large if we are transporting that with a boat. And this is usually what you are going to do if you transport energy from one continent to another. Hydrogen. We can make it, we can use it, but how do we transport it? The entire solar industry rests, both literally and figuratively, on a vulnerable material. That material is aluminum. It is one of the most carbon-intensive metals, with the bulk of its supply originating in China. But what if module frames made from domestic recycled steel replaced it? On May 30th, Latitude Media and Origami Solar will host a frontier forum that explores what would happen if the U.S. solar industry shifted from aluminum to recycled steel. We'll explore the impact on supply chains, costs, technical performance, and carbon emissions. This is a must-attend for anyone who cares about the domestic solar industry. Register for free by clicking the link in the show notes, or go to latitudemedia.com slash events. I'm Shale Khan. I invest in revolutionary climate technologies at Energy Impact Partners. Welcome. So there are lots and lots of interesting things to talk about around the state and future of clean hydrogen. But the one that in my mind gets the least attention, or at least the least attention relative to its importance, is the midstream. Let's posit for a moment that we are going to be able to produce cheap, clean hydrogen in volumes sufficient to impact the global energy market and our climate trajectory. Let's just assume that's true. Let's also posit that we will find enough valuable end uses for that hydrogen all over the world to warrant its production in the first place. Maybe it's for shipping or aviation fuel, maybe steel making, maybe long duration power storage, maybe just replacement of ammonia production. There are lots of options. Either way, let's just say we've got the hydrogen and we've got the demand. The thing is, at least in some cases, it is unlikely that we will have both of those things in the same place. And therein lies the rub. Because if you ask anyone smart the question, if hydrogen has a fatal flaw, what is it? Their answer will almost invariably be storage and transportation. If we make it in one place and we use it in another, what do we do in between? And in particular, what do we do if that in-between includes an ocean? In other words, will we build some massive global intercontinental hydrogen transport network? There are, of course, many options for how to transport hydrogen at those scales across oceans. This is not really a technical constraint so much as it is an economic and to some extent a political one. There are economies saying that they want to import a lot of hydrogen. There are economies saying that they want to export a lot of hydrogen. And everybody is testing out many different options for how to do the in-between, but it's very early days and everything faces a different set of challenges. So let's run through what we know today. I had this conversation with Anne-Sophie Corbeau. You've heard her before. She's a global research scholar at Columbia University's Center on Global Energy Policy. She's also the former head of gas analysis for BP. By the way, this topic, how to store and move hydrogen around, is near and dear to my heart specifically. I think it is incredibly important and very difficult. Anne-Sophie and I talked through the well-known pathways, five of them, in fact, but I'm interested 
in entrepreneurs who have a breakthrough solution within or beyond these pathways. So if that's you, then get in touch. And in the meantime, here's Anne-Sophie. Anne-Sophie, welcome back. Thank you for having me. Let's talk about hydrogen and the challenges of transporting it, particularly transporting it long distances. Starting with um, hydrogen overall, I mean, I think people who pay attention to this market already understand it's sort of a challenge that needs to be solved if there's going to be this these big transcontinental flows of hydrogen. But explain why it's a challenge. We have, we get, so let's just say we produce clean hydrogen uh, at a cost that is, that would make it effective to move it around and use it in a bunch of different contexts. Why is it a challenge to transport it? I mean, it's a challenge mostly because of the very low volumetric energy density of hydrogen. So we are talking about the energy which is contained in a volume. It's not about the mass. It's not about, it's really about the volume. So to explain to you, hydrogen has a very, very low energy density, volumetric energy density. So if I compare it with natural gas, and we are talking about hydrogen at normal temperature and pressure. So we have not transformed hydrogen. It's, you know, a normal gas. It's about three times lower than natural gas. But just so that it speaks to you, if I were to compare that with oil, so the ratio between oil and natural gas is about 1,000. So between hydrogen and oil, we are talking about a factor which is largely over 3,000. So if you want to transport the same energy as in one cubic meter of oil, well, you need more than 3,000 cubic meters of hydrogen at normal temperature and pressure. So you see that the boat is going to be quite large if we are transporting that with a boat. And this is usually what you are going to do if you transport energy from one continent to another. Right. And that, that's a good opportunity for us to be clear about what we're talking about here, which is we're talking about predominantly these long distance major flows of hydrogen, you know, not necessarily, it's a different set of questions though, the same challenge uh, in a, in a smaller context, if you're talking about transporting hydrogen 50 miles from the point of production to the point of use, right? This is about, are we going to be putting hydrogen in tanker ships in some form or another, and transporting it from one continent to another, which a lot of people have proposed. Yes, this is exactly what people have proposed. And I think this is important from maybe not only, you know, a technical point of view, but maybe also from a geopolitical point of view to understand which countries have said, I am intending to import hydrogen. Because the funny thing is that there are not that many countries which have said, yes, I will import hydrogen. So you have the European Union as a large has said, yes, by 2030, I am saying that I want to import 10 million tons of hydrogen. So these are the famous WePower EU targets. But by the way, nobody believes in, everybody thinks that they are totally aspirational. Among these countries in Europe, there is in particular Germany who really wants to import hydrogen and they have already a certain number of projects, etc. But there are also a couple of countries like Japan, like Korea, like Singapore, who have also said, yes, we are going to import hydrogen. For me, a very big question mark, the elephant in the room is China. I mean, some people are saying, yes, China is going to import hydrogen. And other people are saying, well, actually, maybe not. And, you know, it's going to make a huge difference whether China is going to import hydrogen or not. 
because, you know... Why would China import hydrogen? I mean, see, it strikes me that the reason that these other countries, the reason it makes perfect sense to me that countries like Japan and Singapore, to a lesser extent Germany, might import hydrogen, because let's presume that a lot of the hydrogen production that takes place is going to be via electrolysis or potentially via blue hydrogen or whatever. You know, either way, you need natural gas or you need power, you need land. Um, those are things that Japan and Singapore and places like that don't have and Germany may not have enough of. So I get why that would make sense. China has an abundance of land at a, at a minimum and the ability to build stuff like transmission lines. Like what, what is the argument for why China would import hydrogen? Well, you would have to ask, you know, the people who have done their studies because they are not particularly explicit about, uh, you know, that. I think, you know, they are probably comparing uh, the fact that the demand in China is particularly large right now. China is the largest uh, producer and consumer of hydrogen. Uh, the numbers vary a little bit, but roughly around a third of total hydrogen demand is consumed in China. And if you want to decarbonize that, then, you know, you would need a lot of low-carbon hydrogen or clean hydrogen. So I think this is, you know, why some people are seeing China as a potential big market for clean hydrogen. But I think this is actually one of the number one questions that everybody needs to ask himself. Is China going to import hydrogen. And that's probably also what people need to pay attention to. We have not really seen, you know, the Chinese being particularly active in all this uh, geopolitics of hydrogen, you know, the um, energy or the hydrogen diplomacy. There, there have been a lot of deals being signed by a certain number of European countries, Japan, Korea, with potential exporters of hydrogen. But China has been relatively absent of all those deals. So I think, you know, that is a very important question. People are focusing too much on, you know, the usual suspects and probably not enough on the, on the elephant in the room. Okay, yeah. I mean, a priori, I, it doesn't make sense to me that China would become a massive hydrogen importer. It feels like exactly the kind of thing hydrogen would self-produce if they, they need a lot of clean hydrogen. But who knows? Maybe I'm wrong. Anyway, the, back to the, the core point here, which is, as you said, the challenge with hy hydrogen transport, particularly large volume, long distance transcontinental hydrogen transport, is this volumetric energy density problem, which, uh, just to repeat it, it's not, it's not a weight problem, it's a space problem. You just need a lot of space if you're transporting uh, hydrogen gas in its natural form. So, no one's proposing doing that, right? No one is saying, let's just take hydrogen gas in its natural form, put it in a tanker and ship it around. Everybody recognizes that's a crazy idea. What people are proposing is doing something to that hydrogen and then moving it around. And so I think what we want to spend most of our time talking about are the various options that people have proposed for the form in which to move hydrogen around and think a little bit through the kind of trade-offs with each one. So Briefly, the five that we're going to talk about, which are, I think, not the only five possible ways to move hydrogen around, but are certainly the ones that have gotten the most attention, are liquefying it, uh, turning it back into or turning it into methane, into e-methane, turning it into ammonia, which we've talked about on this podcast before, turning it into methanol, or using uh, what's called a liquid organic hydrogen carrier. So let's run through each of those, and I think for each one we'll We'll talk about what the transformation actually would be 
to get it into that form and then kind of the trade-off. So let, let's just start with liquefying hydrogen. This is what we're doing to natural gas. This is why we have all these LNG terminals getting built up everywhere. We are doing transcontinental trade of, of natural gas. And as you said, natural gas also not nearly as uh, energy dense from a volumetric perspective as oil. So we, we've sort of solved that at least to some extent in natural gas with liquefaction. Why is that not just the solution for hydrogen? Because of the temperature, mostly. I mean, uh, with uh, LNG, liquefied natural gas, the temperature is minus 160 degrees. With hydrogen, it's minus 253 degrees. Uh, I don't know whether you have done chemistry or physics in the past, but you know, the absolute zero is minus 273 degrees. So we are just 20 degrees above that. So that's really, really, really super cold, right? I mean, so that's why, you know, in order to liquefy at this kind of temperatures, I mean, first of all, uh, you need a lot of energy. So just in order to do the process, I mean, typically right now it's about, you know, 30% of the energy which is in hydrogen will be, you know, used in order to basically liquefy the hydrogen. Uh, typically for natural gas, it's between 5 to 10%. I mean, now the liquefaction plants are becoming more and more, um, uh, you know, efficient. So that's already a pretty complicated thing. And then, well, you need also, you know, to have a completely different choice of material, uh, which are still being tested. I mean, the liquefaction process, you know, in itself uh, is known as mature. I mean, we are liquefying hydrogen in order to basically, you know, send that um, to the space. I mean, this is very much used in the space industry. So the NASA knows very well how to liquefy hydrogen. The problem is to do that at scale, you know, a lot of volume, etc., and also uh, to reduce the energy consumption, which is currently being dedicated to the liquefaction. But for me, you know, one of the complicated things is also to transport uh, this hydrogen. It has been done only once uh, between Australia and Japan, so you can already see, you know, the kind of trips that we are envisaging. And it was done at the very beginning of... Um, of last year, so it was um, a, a, co a, a boat called uh, the Suizo Frontier, and the Suizo Frontier uh, transported about 75 tons of hydrogen. So just to give you an idea, I mean, the global market for hydrogen right now is uh, 94 million tons of hydrogen. So that tiny boat transported 75 tons of hydrogen. So we would need to multiply the volumes that, you know, this boat transports by a factor of about 1,000, actually a little bit more. So the, the, the volume of that boat is about uh, 1,250 cubic meters. And right now what people are envisaging is increasing that to 160,000 cubic meters. So you can see that, you know, there is a lot to be done. Yeah, to me, the scale-up challenge of building a bunch of terminals and then a bunch of ships to move liquefied hydrogen around. That's a challenge. It's a big, it's a ton of CapEx. Um, I'm sure there's engineering challenges there too. That to me is the lesser issue where the primary issue is what you first mentioned, which is the cost, which is basically a function of the energy cost to get it liquefied in the first place. Um, that adds up to a pretty significant cost and makes it really difficult to sort of make, imagine the numbers penciling for delivered hydrogen to one of these importers um, in liquefied form, which is, I think, why everybody's interested in some of these alternatives, which are less like, less similar to what we have already proven are, are doing in natural gas. Yeah. But I mean, what you have to understand is, you know, kind of costs which are giving, given now are in fact costs for 
2030, you know, so themselves are already assuming a certain number of improvements uh, to the technology that we have now. And these costs by 2030 are still quite significant. Okay, so that's the fundamental challenge with uh, liquefaction. Let's talk about some of the more novel ideas. Um, let's start with the other one that looks most like natural gas, I think, next, be, because it is literally natural gas. So there, the other thing you can do, and the, the benefit of this version is that you then do take advantage of all this infrastructure that already has been built for natural gas. Basically, you take hydrogen, you combine it with, with CO2 through a process called methanation, you produce CH4, which is natural gas, and then you just use the existing natural gas infrastructure. There's something in some ways very elegant about it, there's something also that I think anyone who's thinking through like the thermodynamics of it sort of hates. But what, what are your thoughts on uh, what what people call e-methane? E-methane, yeah, for electromethane, or some people are calling it also synthetic methane. Uh, the Japanese, I think, are using carbon neutral gas or LNG because they are going to import LNG. I mean, this is a concept which is particularly um, popular in Japan because they are thinking that, you know, they don't have to change, indeed, their LNG import infrastructure. This is also a concept which is uh, quite interesting for some companies in Europe. And, and indeed, I mean, one of the key problems is, is the cost um, of that. I mean, uh, you know, the cost of producing uh, the emethane would be, I mean, the estimates from the IA right now is something around $80 per MMBTU, which is about 10 times, you know, the normal price of natural gas. So that is quite expensive. And and you have also to think about the source of CO2 because eventually you are going to burn that methane. So there are different concepts. Either you are using CO2, which is coming from direct air capture, or this is biogenic CO2, so it might have a cost. I mean, you know that direct air capture is not particularly something which exists at, exists at scale right now. Or you are doing something which has been proposed by the Twin Energy Solution uh, project in, in Germany from Marco Alvera. You are doing a little circle with your CO2. So you're taking the CO2, you are uh, indeed mixing that with hydrogen, uh, transforming that into methane, etc. But at the end, when you're arriving in the importing country, then you are getting the CO2 back and you are sending it back uh, to the exporter of hydrogen. And you have a cycle, an eternal cycle of, of CO2. Except that, of course, you are going to have some losses there and there, so you need to compensate that. So I think you made one key point, which is, you know, the source of CO2 matters here. For this to be actually a climate benefit, it needs to be biogenic CO2 or it needs to be CO2 from direct air capture. That obviously has a higher cost than the CO2 you would have gotten off of a flu stack or something like that. So really it comes down to here, I mean, the benefit is using the existing infrastructure and that should not be, that should not be discounted, particularly for countries like Japan, right? That is a big deal. That infrastructure is very expensive <laughs> and it would be very expensive to build entirely new infrastructure for something, for 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 example, liquefied hydrogen terminals. So it's not nothing, but if the cost is going to be $80 per MMBTU, it's really hard to get excited about that. This is the current cost. I mean, you know, the whole question is about where you would go. And this is the whole thing about, you know, all these uh, different ways of transporting hydrogen. There are many of them. It's not like natural gas. With natural gas, it was easy. It's either pipeline or you liquefy. Very easy. Here we have so many solutions. And if we embark in each of them, then we are not going to get the cost improvements that are required. But people are still arguing which one is the best. 
And, you know, this, it, it might also depend uh, from the exporter strategy. It might also depend from the importer strategy. I've spent, you know, the last year asking people in Europe, but what exactly is a hydrogen-ready LNG import terminal? Because people in Europe think that, you know, they can just use their LNG import terminal and transform it in order to import something else, which, something else which would be related to hydrogen, whether this is liquid hydrogen, whether this is ammonia, or whether this is emethane, then it depends on whom you are talking to. Mark your calendars for May 30th at 1 p.m. Eastern. That's when Latitude Media and Origami Solar will unveil new research on how recycled steel can help reinvigorate the U.S. solar industry. Why recycled steel? Well, the solar industry is dependent on imported aluminum for frames, leaving it vulnerable to geopolitics, supply disruptions, and higher-cost transportation. By switching from aluminum to recycled steel, solar producers can reduce greenhouse gas emissions and qualify for IRA domestic content incentives. Have questions about the shift to steel and the impact on supply chains? Join Latitude Media's Stephen Lacey, Origami Solar CEO Greg Patterson, and American Clean Power's MJ Shao for this live virtual event. Again, it's May 30th at 1 p.m. Eastern. Register for free at latitudemedia.com slash events, or click the link in the show notes. So the nice thing about uh, e-methane or synthetic methane is that it, it doesn't, you don't have to deal with a lot of that stuff, really just comes down to cost to me, right? And $80 per MMBTU is not going to cut it. $20 per MMBTU might, right? And so it's just a function of, can you make, and and really the cost of the synthetic methane is predominantly the cost of the hydrogen. Just that's a, relatively speaking, it's a much bigger chunk. So the, if you get cheap enough hydrogen, it starts to become interesting, but it requires really cheap hydrogen. And then you have to deal with methanation. And then you have to deal with the source of CO2. And the source of CO2, that's right. Okay, so continuing along our list, so we've talked about just liquefying it. We've talked about turning it back into, or turning it into natural gas, turning it into CH4. Um, Before we move on and talk about transforming hydrogen into an entirely different molecule, let's talk about um, these ideas of these hydrogen carriers, which can be used to make hydrogen more energy dense, basically, and then re-extract the hydrogen in its gaseous form or whatever for use on the other side. The one that I think it has gotten the most attention is liquid organic hydrogen carriers, or LOHCs. So talk about what, what these are and how this might work. So it's basically um, a, a molecule, an organic molecule. Uh, I mean, there are several of them being, you know, uh, thought about. And, uh, you know, they basically can absorb hydrogen. And then, so you have a process which is called hydrogenation. And then you have a process which is called dehydrogenation. So you have to think of it as a transporter of hydrogen. So you are just putting the molecule of hydrogen onto this bigger molecule. The problem, I mean, there are several problems. One of the biggest problems is when you are arriving to your import terminal, then uh, the process is particularly energy intensive. So this is one of the biggest problems indeed. Uh, However, the beauty of these uh, products, which are not far away from oil products, is that they are relatively easy to transport. Some of them uh, might have some toxicity issues, but usually they're easier to deal with in terms of pressure, in terms of temperature compared to liquid hydrogen, for example. But 
funny thing is that not that many people are looking at them. Uh, you know, one of the few examples that I know of an actual trial is, for example, uh, exports from Brunei to Japan. So again, Japan. I mean, Japan is basically testing every single solution because they know so well that they have to import, that they are testing liquid hydrogen, they are testing liquid organic hydrogen carriers, they are testing ammonia, etc. Okay, so let's just dig in a little bit more then. How do these liquid organic hydrogen carriers compare? I think to liquefied hydrogen is probably the most relevant direct comparison. How do they compare against each other? I guess predominantly in terms of cost, which is probably the the most important metric, but anything else that we think of as being important in this context? Well, as I mentioned, I mean, uh, you know, the beauty of these products is that, uh, you know, this is not something which is completely uh, foreign. So, you know, people would know how to deal with them. However, uh, the cost is still high, but much lower than, you know, the expected cost of uh, liquid hydrogen. So, you know, when I was talking about, uh, you know, the, the high range of liquid hydrogen by 2030, which is above $7 per kilogram, uh, you know, the, the high range for liquid organic hydrogen carriers would be around $4 per kilogram. So this is much lower already, much affordable, possibly down to 2.5, but yeah. Right. So basically the trade-off here is, it, it seems like on paper, liquid organic hydrogen carrier is probably a better solution than liquefied hydrogen. Uh, maybe the catch is just that they're early and sort of unproven. Yes, and that, you know, funny enough, it doesn't seem to attract a lot of attention. I have not found a lot of people who were really, I mean, I know that, you know, Japan and a few European players are looking into that, but compared to another solution that I am sure you are going to mention after that one, you know, it's not really, it doesn't seem to be the favorite. Right. I found that sort of surprising as well, because on paper, they do seem pretty interesting. I mean, there's, it's still expensive. You know, like you said, the high end, the high end of $4 per kilogram, so that's the high end. Let's assume it could be cheaper, but you know we want we want the hydrogen itself to be sub three dollars a kilogram. Ideally, you know to com- to compete in North America with uh, existing SMR based not clean hydrogen. You know you're down in the dollar fifty per kilogram range. So just to contextualize it, you know you could double the the delivered cost could be double or more the produced cost of hydrogen if you end up spending three or four dollars a kilogram on on transportation now that might still be worth it uh depending on who your customer is and what they can pay but it is a hefty premium so i think there's there's a lot of work to be done on the technology side there but i find them pretty interesting nonetheless and i agree with you that i'm surprised that they get less attention than than the next two things that we're about to talk about yeah i mean just to say i mean you know if the transport cost is indeed remaining at uh, three four dollars per uh, per kilogram i mean you know this is kind of game over because that would come on top of the production cost of hydrogen so that would make hydrogen outrageously expensive and then we have a problem in terms of the penetration of hydrogen in the economy i mean there is nobody who is going to use hydrogen at such a high cost i mean one dollar per kilogram of hydrogen is roughly equivalent to uh, a bit more than uh, about nine dollars Per, um, per MMBTU. You know, roughly, you are talking about $50 per barrel for $1 per kilogram of hydrogen. So if you're talking about, oh yeah, free four, uh, okay, so that's $150 to $200 per barrel for just the transport of hydrogen. So that's outrageously expensive from an energy point of view. Okay, so let's talk about the last two categories. And, and these I'm grouping together because both of these are existing markets that we already transform hydrogen into. 
uh, as part of the existing hydrogen economy, such as it is, but are now getting additional attention as hydrogen carriers beyond their direct use, and that's ammonia and methanol. So, and and particularly, I think where this battle is is raging the most is in shipping, because both of these, you know, you can transport, you can use ammonia or methanol as a hydrogen carrier, meaning put it inside a boat and ship it from one country to another and then offload it and use it for something. But they can also be the fuel that powers ships. And there's sort of a, there's a, there's a battle raging between the future of shipping fuel between ammonia and methanol that is sort of interesting in and of itself. But maybe just do a quick comparison of specifically in the context of being a hydrogen carrier, how we should think about ammonia and methanol relative to everything else we've talked about so far. So I think, um, I mean, actually it's interesting because, they, they, you know, again, we are talking so much more about uh, ammonia than methanol. I think methanol is in the corner, but not so much talked about. Um, and I think, you know, it should be more talked about, but ammonia... Um, by 2030 should be roughly in the same range as the LOHC. And sometimes, actually, uh, people consider uh, methanol itself as an LOHC um, because, you know, it's it's also uh, an organic uh, compound. So, you know, I personally don't put it together with the LOHC because, as you mentioned, it can be used as such uh, as a hydrogen derivative. And I think this is particularly important. Also, a big difference between ammonia and methanol is that uh, methanol is mostly considered for shipping. There are some people who are considering that for other applications. But ammonia has also potential applications, at least according to the Japanese, in the power generation sector. So when you are looking at, you know, the Japanese uh, hydrogen strategy, they do envisage to use that combined with coal. So right now they are looking at co-firing with 20% of ammonia. And this is why it could be potentially a bigger market for ammonia. And that's why when you are looking at a certain number of forecasts, um, there is a tendency currently uh, to see a relatively bright future for ammonia as a way to transport hydrogen. But it has a big problem, in my opinion, that's the toxicity. And this is a major one that you really have to deal with, besides the cost and everything else. So how do you think about the toxicity of ammonia? You know, you hear people say both both directions here. One direction is ammonia is toxic and corrosive and very dangerous, requires specialty handling and occasionally causes explosions. Wouldn't we be crazy to, you know, proliferate an ammonia transport ecosystem with all the dangers that that poses. On the other hand, you have people say, well, we already do it, right? We produce a lot of ammonia. All of that ammonia production is centralized. It results in then a you know, fairly large intercontinental transport, existing intercontinental transport of ammonia today for the purpose of fertilizer. So what's so crazy about just expanding what we're already doing? Well, I mean, when you are transporting that, you know, you are transporting that um, in relatively smaller quantities than it would be transported if indeed it becomes a primary carrier of hydrogen. So the quantities would be completely different. You will also be talking about not only, you know, uh, delivering that to ports, but potentially uh, transporting that, you know, forward within countries. I mean, there are a lot of countries' legislations which are not even ready for that, you know. I know that in some countries we have ammonia pipelines which exist. Uh, ammonia is also transported by different ways, like bike trucks, etc. But there are also a certain number of countries for which it is a dangerous product. And indeed, people are a little bit skeptical about using that 
well in different uh, things, in particular in power generation. Okay, so we have these five options that we've talked about. Liquefying hydrogen, turning it into CH4, using a liquid organic hydrogen carrier and then getting the hydrogen back out, turning it into ammonia, turning it into methanol. Now, again, ammonia and methanol sit in a slightly different category because you could then you could turn it into ammonia or methanol and then use ammonia or use methanol directly and then never try to get the hydrogen back out. And that's one of the reasons people are excited about those two options. But that aside, if we just assume, you know, hydrogen to hydrogen, um, transported a long distance in between, do we have any sense of amongst these five what, what looks to be the cheapest? Or is it totally dependent on, for example, the future cost of LOHCs or, you know, how cheap it's going to be to get the hydrogen back into gaseous form from a liquefied form? Like, what are the big factors that determine, you know, what wins just on a cost basis? Well, I think given that, you know, um, you need for each of these process to basically scale up or do some improvement on the efficiency, I think, you know, one of the critical factors is probably uh, moving towards one direction and not the five at the same time. Because, you know, it's the same thing as, you know, with the electrolyzers. I mean, uh, you really want to focus and you really want to be able to capture as much as possible. And this is mostly my preoccupation when I'm seeing so many different options uh, to transport hydrogen. And we have not even talked about actually uh, the best one, which is transporting hydrogen by pipeline, which can also be an option between, you know, different continents and will be definitely an option and the cheapest option for Europe. Uh, I think right now uh, it's it's a battle between LOHC and ammonia in terms of cost for the kind of next 10 years. But there are people who are saying, yeah, by 2050, you know, they can all converge to roughly $1 per kilogram eventually or even maybe by 2040. I mean, the question is whether we can actually achieve this kind of cost reduction because you need to scale up this process. You need to improve these processes um, if we are moving forward with all of them. That's such a great point that we haven't talked about hydrogen pipelines, which is which is pipelines. crazy, right? Yeah. We should obviously talk about that. That is, it's clearly the right answer, in my opinion. Well, for Europe, definitely. For the others, uh, for Singapore, for uh, Japan, definitely for Japan and Korea, this is a little bit problematic because if you remember what happened with uh, natural gas, you know, they import LNG and not a single drop of pipeline gas. Right. Uh, even though, in theory, you know, Russia is not that far away, but no, it has not happened at all. So, I mean, for Europe, it makes total sense uh, to import uh, hydrogen by pipeline from Norway. And there is actually a project which which is moving forward uh, between Germany and Norway, which is sponsored by RWE and Equinor. So that's one project. There is a lot of interest also from in, to import uh, hydrogen from North Africa. So there are a certain number of countries which are interested in exporting uh, hydrogen. Whether it's going to be by pipeline or not, uh, that also depends on the development of the infrastructure within Europe. Because if you are looking at countries like Morocco, like Mauritania, where do they land? Well, they land into Spain. And then where do they go? Well, they need to go to, you know, again, the, the market of interest, which is Germany, which means that they have to go through France, they have to go, you know, through the whole country, etc. So, you know, it will depend ultimately on how the European infrastructure is also developed. I mean, on the paper, it makes total sense. And I think Norway here has an advantage because... 
well, they can potentially reuse their own pipelines, or at least, you know, they, they know exactly how to transport the hydrogen from wherever they're going to produce it. I think first it's going to be based on natural gas and CCS, and eventually on a lot of wind plants in the North Sea and then towards Germany. Yeah, right. I, that's a good point. I think so. Intra Europe, intra North America. Ultimately, if we are building a hydrogen economy, we're going to probably build a bunch of pipelines. When is a challenge, and there's a chicken or an egg problem there. There's lots of challenges doing it, but it just seems like the obvious thing to do. But it's a good point that that probably isn't the solution for some of these countries that are thinking about importing hydrogen anyway because they can't build a pipeline. It's part of the reason they need to import stuff by boat already. Yeah, but even even that question about transporting, you know, the hydrogen internally is not that easy. Uh, there are a lot of people who are scratching their heads, first of all, on can we repurpose a natural gas pipeline into hydrogen because it has a much lower cost. I mean, you are gaining something like, you know, uh, 50 to 80% of the cost if you are reusing your pipeline. So, you know, in terms of system cost, this is much better. Uh, the question is, you need to assess each of your pipelines in order to know whether these pipelines can be repurposed and handle 100% of hydrogen. I have to say that in Europe, they are already uh, well ahead. You know, there are a lot of groups and we are actually quite lucky that in Europe we have groups like NSOG and GIE. They are regrouping all the transmission system operators together. I have to say, I don't think, you know, the U.S. can actually uh, benefit from that kind of coordination. But this is absolutely essential. You need to have a mapping. You, have, you need to have a census of all the different natural gas pipelines. And you need to understand to what extent they can or not transport hydrogen, and in particular, 100% hydrogen. So that is absolutely necessary. And then it's going to depend whether you have, you know, a system where you have, for example, two pipelines which are running in parallel, and then you can disconnect one, replace it by hydrogen, and you can continue to run with the others because the thing is that you will need to connect supply and demand, but that's not easy, and you need at the same time to continue to run a natural gas economy. So, you know, it's not so easy as you think or as you try to describe it. No, I mean, it's definitely not easy. That's There's all sorts of challenges. I'm just saying it's the right answer. I'm not saying it's the answer that's going to be easy or that we're going to do. Uh, again, for within within regions where pipelines are are feasible, you've a couple times mentioned. I think one of the big challenges is just stepping way back at the highest level, which I guess is maybe how I'll I'll wrap up with you. Which is because there are these various options, and all are being considered simultaneously. We're not really yet at the point where we are sort of driving up the maturity and down the cost curve rapidly on any one of them because. Because nobody, no, nothing has won over all the other options. Do you see us getting past that? Are there going to be winners for this transcontinental hydrogen trade? And, and like, what would have to happen for, for winners to emerge? Or are we just going to end up with a bunch of different options all being proposed, but none of them really taking flight fast enough because they have to compete with all the others? So I'm going to give you a two-step answers. I think right now what we are seeing is that a certain number of projects based on ammonia seem to be moving forward. One very big example of that is a NEOM project in Saudi Arabia, which is going to export about a quarter of million ton of hydrogen based on ammonia, has basically uh, decided to move ahead and is being built right now. But 
more broadly, because I mentioned several times that, you know, if you want to use hydrogen as hydrogen, and we are not talking about using uh, ammonia or using uh, methanol as a final product, which I think, you know, in that condition, this is okay to transport them as such. But if you want to transport hydrogen as a, or to use hydrogen as a final product, then there is a key question about whether it makes sense for industries. So I'm talking about, you know, steel, etc to import the hydrogen or whether it's actually better for countries which have low-cost hydrogen to produce steel, to produce hot bricket iron and to export these products towards developed economies. And this is a major issue uh, from an industrial point of view. But this is an issue which has to be discussed because this is also a question of, you know, um, the value of hydrogen for the developing countries, which are going to be blessed with a lot of renewable potential. I mean, you know, are they just going to get the money from these uh, hydrogen projects and you have a bunch of people from Europe or from Japan who are going to come and say, hey, I'm taking the renewable energy, I'm transforming hydrogen and I'm taking everything with me. And then I'm importing super expensive hydrogen, which is actually not going to be competitive for my industry. Or is it better to actually produce, you know, such products in developing countries at a lower cost and they are going to be much easier to transport. And that's, you know, already part of the answer with ammonia and methanol. But you can think about other products. You can think about, you know, e-kerosene, you can think about uh, steel, etc. And I think this is absolutely essential to look at that. And if I take a step back from, you know, all the technical considerations, from an economic point of view, Many developing countries want to benefit the maximum from hydrogen. And hydrogen is not a rent business. It's not like oil or gas. It's a conversion industry. So you are never going to get as much revenues and benefits as you were with oil and gas. But if you are fostering industrial developments with low-carbon hydrogen, then you know there is an opportunity for developing countries which have a high potential in hydrogen to actually get better benefits than just revenues from pure export of hydrogen. Well, Anne-Sophie, this is going to be an open, active area of lots of announcements and activity, maybe fewer final investment decisions, but something going on uh, for some long period of time, I suspect. So uh, there will be more to talk about in the future. But in the meantime, thank you so much for, for joining me again. Thank you very much for the invitation. And Sophie Corbeau is a senior research scholar at Columbia University's Center on Global Energy Policy. This show is a co-production of Postscript Media and Canary Media. You can head over to canarymedia.com for links to today's topics. Postscript is supported by Prelude Ventures, a venture capital firm that partners with entrepreneurs to address climate change across a range of sectors, including advanced energy, food and ag, transportation and logistics, advanced materials and manufacturing, and advanced computing. This episode was produced by Daniel Waldorf. Mixing by Roy Campanella and Sean Marquand. Theme song by Sean Marquand. I'm Shale Khan, and this is Catalyst. Catalyst.